Uh, as I get started here, uh, I want to take a moment first to uh, wish a very happy birthday to my daughter, Alyssa, who uh, turned 35 today. So happy birthday, Liz, uh, up there in Colorado. Uh, and speaking of family, certain members of my family over the years claimed that uh, at night, I emitted a very loud noise through my nasal uh, passages, and that I often stopped breathing or whatever uh, during the night. So, I, uh, you know, a few years ago, about five years ago, I went through a sleep study that uh, to figure out what was going on at night. And uh, the sleep team hooked me up to all these electrodes and stuff. And uh, they told me to go to sleep. Yeah, that's not exactly uh, the way I usually go to sleep. But, uh, but they were going to take readings uh, to see what it revealed about my sleep and, uh, and so on. And to help me get a good night's sleep. So uh, the, the next day, you know, the, uh, whoever the guys are, that the respiratory therapists or whatever they are, that uh, kind of run the test, they, they let me take a peek at the, uh, the charts and stuff which I could make neither head nor tails of. Uh, you know, they were just something that I didn't know what they were. Uh, but there is a doctor who is skilled in reading these things. And so he was gonna read these charts and interpret the data. So this morning, we're gonna continue in our study of the book of Daniel. And um, we're gonna look at an incident that began with another man who had trouble getting a good night's sleep. Um, the title of my message is Nebuchadnezzar's Sleep Study. So please open up to Daniel chapter 2. <coughs> Daniel chapter 2, and I'm going to read, it's a long chapter, but I'm going to go ahead and read it. So now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dreams. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made in ash sheet. Yeah, I, as I read through that, it's one of those things that's kind of funny. It's like, okay, do they really care about their houses or cut in pieces? <laughs> but uh, uh, but it, it's a big deal. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honors. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. They answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. 
It's a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious, and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Ariok, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Ariok, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Ariok made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision, so Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed is the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might. And have now made known to me what we ask of you, for you have not, for you have made known to us the king's demand. Therefore, Daniel went to Ariok, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Ariok quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found the man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king his the interpretation. And the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the later days. Your dream and the visions of your head um, upon your bed were those, were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while in your bed about what would come to pass after this, and he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, the secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone uh, living, but for our sakes, who make known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image, this great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them unto you, unto your hand, and has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. But after you shall rise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. 
And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, and, uh, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal the secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. And also Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. All right, very long chapter. Uh, lots in there. Uh, the prophetic part of this is not the main goal of what I want to share this morning, but rather, but you can't read and exposit on this chapter without including the uh, prophetic parts. But rather, I want to look at how Daniel provides a challenging picture of, of what true dedication to God means and of what God is willing to do through uh, someone that is fully committed to him. Um, I want to show, and this is true, uh, these are, this is the example of Daniel through the whole book, uh, but we get a good example of them here in this chapter. Uh, I want to show how God controls and directs the history of, uh, of nations and controls the circumstances of his people for the accomplishment of his divine plan. Uh, the wonderful message of Daniel is not just that God will rule, but that God does rule. So regarding the character of Daniel himself, we've already seen from chapter one that he purposed in his heart to keep himself uh, undefiled and sanctified to God, uh, even in the face of severe punishment. Through the whole book, we will see how Daniel remains a man of conviction as he lives a holy life before God, no matter the situation that he finds himself in. Despite his wisdom and understanding, or perhaps because of his wisdom and understanding, uh, Edward Young said of Daniel, there is a gentle courtesy in his relation with the others and a simple and humble dependence upon the grace and power of the gods whom he worships. Daniel had a gentle courtesy toward others. Daniel was humble despite his high standing, despite his intelligence, his wisdom, um, and all these uh, these things. Daniel was a man that uh, that people could admire and people uh, um, could look to and see a picture of one who had 
um, a certain grace before God. So while in Babylon, Daniel served under at least five kings, four of whom are mentioned in the book, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, and Cyrus. Uh, we're going to take a brief look here at the background of the king in this chapter, uh, Mr. Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar II ruled the Babylonian Empire from 605 B.C. to 562 B.C. He was born about 642 B.C. and he died in 562 when he gave up the kingdom. His father was King Nebuchadnezzar, who is credited with starting what's known as the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And uh, when Nebuchadnezzar died in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar came to the throne and then he ruled for the next 43 years. He would be the longest ruling king of the empire of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man of the Babylonian dynasty, and he's best known for the magnificence of his capital, Babylon. Uh, um, he's also known for his construction projects, including the famous Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which were, um, you know, one of the seven wonders of the world. And some of the stuff, not, not so much the things that he, he built more, but there are some interesting relics uh, in uh, at the, what used to be the Oriental Institute in Chicago. And, uh, you know, you can see some of the things uh, still that... Uh, that he constructed and others uh, around his time. But Nebuchadnezzar was also a merciless man, uh, and, uh, and especially towards those that he had conquered. For example, when he was marching the Jewish captives to Babylon, uh, they were not allowed to stop for even a moment because he feared that they would pray to the God of heaven and that uh, that their God would help them as soon as they repented. If he gave them a moment's rest, he feared that they would pray and that God would relent uh, and help them. And he didn't want no God helping his captives. And uh, let's turn for a moment to um, the book of Jeremiah. Uh, Ted will look at this in a couple of years, I think. But uh, Jeremiah chapter 39 Nebuchadnezzar has good reason to have this fear of, uh, of a God that, um, that is merciful. And, and he knows. Uh, he's, he's familiar with Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah chapter 39, verse 11. Says, now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave charge concerning Jeremiah to Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him and look after him and do him no harm, but do to him just as he says to you. So Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, sent Nebuchadnezzar, so he goes on and says these other things, and then go down to uh, chapter 40, verse 2. So then the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God has pronounced this doom on this place. Now the Lord has brought it and done just as he said, because you people have sinned against the Lord and not obeyed his voice. Therefore, this thing has come upon you. And now look, I free you this day from the chains that were on your hand. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come, and I will look after you. But if it seems wrong for you to come with me to Babylon, remain here. See, all the land is before you. Wherever it seems good and convenient for you to go, go there. Mm -hmm. Nebuchadnezzar 
I don't know whether he ever met Jeremiah, but he was well aware of Jeremiah. He was well aware of the prophecies. He was well aware that Jeremiah's God brought this judgment on these people because of their sin. And as he's marching them off, he uh, fears that if they take a moment and pray, he believes that Jeremiah's God will relent, have mercy, and save them from uh, from this uh, from this king. And so, uh, so Nebuchadnezzar marches them without rest. Many probably died along the way, and uh, as he as he takes them. Um, he did not feel safe until he reached the, um, the the Euphrates River, which essentially was the border of um, the Babylon uh, of, of the city of Babylon. Uh, and there he made a great feast on, on board his ship while the princes of Judah lay chained and naked uh, by the river. Nebuchadnezzar was very concerned about this. Um, and as we just read, uh, he had a good reason to. Nebuchadnezzar engaged in several military campaigns designed to increase Babylonian influence in Syria and Judah. After he had successfully finished his wars in Syria, Egypt, Judah, and the surrounding region, and had made immense improvements to, to the infrastructure of Babylon, he enjoyed uninterrupted peace and prosperity for the rest of his reign. But despite the peace his empire would eventually know, he sometimes had trouble with sleep. In our chapter before us, Nebuchadnezzar is in the second year of his reign. We don't know if he had been worrying um, about the future, one wondering about his position. Certainly, uh, there was always uh, uh, a certain amount of intrigue that went on in a kingdom like that. He had just uh, uh, returned from uh, a battle, um, uh, and you know because his father had died, he is now uh, again the second year of his reign. Um, and there were those that would want to take over. It's very possible he was wondering as he lay in bed about the future of his kingdom and the future of himself. And as he lay there, he has a restless night filled with dreams that disturbed him to a point that he just could not sleep. It seemed evident to him that this dream was meant to convey a message uh, maybe the gods, the gods that he worshipped, were trying to tell him something. But instead, uh, and, said, indeed, there is a special message, but not from the dead gods, the, un, uh, the unliving gods that he worshipped, but from the living God of heaven. There's a message that is being delivered to him. He doesn't understand the meaning of the dream, uh, and this really bothers him. And since he didn't know what the meaning was, he called his wise men, the experts in everything, to provide answers. It says that he called the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, in the New King James Version, uh, to tell him his dreams. He lived in a culture that was shrouded in darkness. False gods were worshipped in the form of idols. Uh, the Babylonians worshipped many gods, as many as 4,000 different gods. And for all these different gods, there were different specialists who um, specialized in finding out information about them. 
For instance, some of them were experts in just learning the will of the gods. You know, they would petition the gods and, and they would get a message and, you know, and then tell the kings what they wanted to hear. You know, some of the prophets of Israel were very similar. They would tell uh, the king what he wanted to hear and not the truth, which is why some of those kings, such as Ahab, did not like the true prophets. There were others who uh, were able to frustrate uh, forces of evil. You know, they had, you know, magic shields or something that, that uh, you know, they, they were diviners. They were able to um, recognize evil and ward it off. And then the, uh, the ones that are called enchanters, uh, they claim to be able to soften the heart of a god with a song. So these were the religious leaders and they were the wisest men in society. They were uh, consulted on matters relating to everything from, say, agriculture to national security. Uh, and, and ancient kings depended on them to make decisions. But, you know, it's very much the same um, today. Uh, and and it, this kind of thing has gone on all through the ages. You know, right now, horoscopes, mediums, fortune cookies, fortune tellers get a lot of play. You know, we have Dear Abby offering us advice. Uh, psychiatrists and psychologists are in huge demand as our counselors for all sorts of things. Even Aunt B bought a tonic to help her quality of life. Perhaps some of you know the reference. She was tiddly. <laughs> now, some of these I've mentioned are forbidden by the scriptures, but others are legitimate. Others are very legitimate. At some point, we all need counsel, but it's essential to turn to the right people for it. There's no shortage of so-called experts out there willing to give us advice, you know, for a dollar. We need to know who are the right ones to go to. We need to seek the ones with the right advice. If you ask an unbeliever for advice on a moral issue, know that it's going to come from a completely different worldview. You need to go to those who you trust that are mature, that um, that believe the Bible, that are believers. Go to them. They may not have the answer, but at least you can trust that they will direct you in the right place. The, 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 the experts of our world don't have the right answers. So in verse 4, the Chaldeans answer the king in Aramaic. Uh, beginning here and continuing through chapter 7 of the book, the language of the book is not in Hebrew, but it's in Aramaic. So the writing changes to a different language. Um, Hebrew, Hebrew was the language of the Jewish people, but Aramaic was the language that was used throughout um, Babylon and pretty much the rest of the world. It was, uh, it was a common language. And it's significant to note that the message that Daniel would announce concerning the nations would be given in the language of the nations. So right when at the point where we're about to talk about a message that is regarding the future of the, the, the world governments, the message turns to their language. The wise men ask the king to tell them his dreams, but he refuses. On some level, uh, we see that the king knows that they were some kind of confidence tricksters. 
and that most of what they said was intended to appease the king. He is convinced that the dream contained an important message for him, and there was only one way to trust that the interpretation provided to him was trustworthy. If someone could first reveal the content of the dream, they would validate their ability to give the interpretation. So when the wise men told him that this was impossible, Nebuchadnezzar was furious, and he, and he uh, basically says, you know, you're done. Well, you know, he issues uh, an execution warning on all of them. And as, as I've already mentioned, Nebuchadnezzar could be very cruel, very merciless. And as the supreme king uh, that, that basically reigned over his full empire, his word, when he said it, it was a go. And so he orders the immediate execution, not only of those present before him, but um, to the entire class of wise men throughout the city of Babylon. The decree is so general that it includes Daniel and his three friends, even though uh, timing-wise, uh, at this point, uh, they may not have even finished their training, uh, which was talked about in chapter one. So although this must have been a very frightening experience for them, they will soon learn that this was God's way of bringing Daniel before the king. So Daniel's immediate response to the threat was to go to Ariok, the uh, the, the chief of uh, the king's guard. And he asked, he asked Ariok, you know, what's the reason for this harsh um, um, decree? And uh, we're told that he answered, uh, that, that he spoke to Ariok with tact and wisdom. The New American Standard says with discretion and discernment. He didn't go, uh, you know, you know, all uh, untied and all, you know, he went and he asked politely. He asked the question, you know, he, he approached in a proper way. And he asked for information, and then he listened so that he could understand the whole picture. And through it all, Daniel is calm and he's collected. Um, he's the poster child for Isaiah 26.3, which says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Daniel perfectly trusted God. He put his faith fully in God, and he was at peace. And when we do that, we can also have peace regardless of the circumstances. Too many times, we become like Peter walking on the water. Uh, we, can have our, we can have faith for, for a little bit, but when we take our eyes off God, our faith goes away. But when our mind, our eyes are stayed on God, stayed on Christ, he gives us peace. So Daniel has earned Ariok's respect over time, and he, he had developed a good relationship with him. And this provided Daniel an opportunity and privilege to ask for his favor. And this is an important lesson. You know, go with those around us, you know, bosses, people that are in authority, always respect them because the, the, the time may come when we need them for something. We may need to ask a favor. We may need to um, ask for something. And it's important that, um, that we live our lives in a way that they respect us and will give us the time. So Daniel asks for an audience with the king, and it's granted. You know, no one goes to the king uninvited. So he must have first asked Ariok to make the request. Daniel was, he wants to do God's will, but he's also going to do it under the authority that God has placed over him. He's going to go through the right channels. 
So Nebuchadnezzar is still troubled by this dream. So he's willing to hear someone that says that they can um, they can help him. You know, and you know, one thing that will kind of work in Daniel's favor here, I think, is that while all the wise men said, we can't do this, which was true, Daniel's only request was for more time uh, so that he could uh, uh, get the, you know, get the meaning. So making his request to the king required courage on Daniel's part, and God gives it to him. Uh, promising to interpret the king's dream required faith. And God supplies that too. Daniel's confidence did not rest in his own ability, but it rested in the God that had put him in this situation. If we are relying on God, trusting God, he'll give us the confidence. He'll give us the courage. He'll give us the faith. You know, the, the disciples said, uh, uh, increase our faith. We can, also, we can ask that same prayer. And he'll give it to us. So Daniel is now moved to pray. And so he calls in his friends to pray together with him. He urges his friends to pray to the God of heaven for an answer. Because it was not to be found on earth in, uh, in the wisdom of men. Daniel specifically asks the, uh, for them to plead for mercy from God. Knowing that the Lord would reveal the answers that they needed. It was not because they deserved it. But because of his own loving kindness. He gives mercy because of who he is, not because of who we are or what we've done. So while the Babylonian wise men despaired from not getting help from their gods, these four young Hebrews worship a loving and merciful and living God who can give answers. And there's strength in numbers, and we need other believers for encouragement. We need them for counsel. We need them for support as we seek the Lord together. This is why the church prayer meeting is so important. When you face a difficult situation, remember that you're not alone. You can go to your brothers and sisters in Christ and ask them to pray with you so that together you can seek mercy from God. Our troubles are often made worse because we try to face them alone. Daniel knew the supreme importance of believing um, of, of a believing prayer, preferably with other believers. Prayer is a skill that enables us to live obediently before God uh, in the midst of trials. A life of regular prayer will result in a life that glorifies God. We need to seek God in prayer on a regular basis and, and as much as possible with other believers. During the night, Daniel receives the answer in a vision. After receiving the answer, Daniel immediately offers up a, pray, a song of praise to God. You know, I wonder what I would do in that situation. You know, would I go running off and, and say, I got it, I got it. You know, uh, Daniel does it. He waits and he offers up, first of all, praise to God. He, he sends up this prayer. He begins the prayer by blessing the name of the Lord because God's name is so tied to the essence of who he is and um, of what he does that, um, that God takes his name so serious, so seriously that misuse of his name is the third is, is brought is what is the third of the Ten Commandments. 
God is very serious about how we use his name. And he's very, uh, and he loves it. When we bless his name and lift up his name and extol his name. Daniel gives an indication of what the Lord revealed about the king's dream as he acknowledges God's sovereign role in history. He hints that the dream has to do with the succession of kings and kingdoms. God's sovereignty over history is one of the most important principles we can learn from this chapter. It is God who determines the sequence of human events. I'm going to name um, uh, some words here, read off some words here, and let's see if anybody can tell me what they are. It was Prussia, Abyssinia, Bequanaland, Rhodesia, Yugoslavia, Persia, Siam, Hejaz, Czechoslovakia. Anybody know what those are? Countries? Not just countries. So this is an atlas from 1923. It's 100 years old. I paged through here. Those are all countries that no longer exist. 100 years ago, they were all sovereign nations. Now, some of them have different names for various reasons, but there's a lot more in here. It's amazing. You can look at the continent of Africa. My point is, kingdoms don't last. They rise, they fall. Yesterday's empires become tomorrow's archaeological digs. God is in control of all of it. God rules over the affairs of men and the affairs of kings. There are some things that are hidden to the mind of man, things that only God can reveal. One of these truths is the sinner's relationship to a holy God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.11, No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Through the miracle of revelation, God has pulled back the veil for us, and he's revealed many truths that were previously hidden. Truths about who we are and about who he is. Uh, truths about his loving plan for us. Truths about how we ruined that plan, and yet he still uh, comes and redeems the plan. The essential difference between Christianity and all other religions is that Christianity is a revealed religion. It's given to us by God, and all other religions are natural and originate in the minds of sinful men. Daniel realized the priority of thanking the Lord for his gracious answer to prayer. His response demonstrated his humility and reliance upon the Lord. Too often, after we pray and receive the answer, we forget to thank God for the, for the answer that, he given, that, that he's given. We need to make time for expressing appreciation and praise to God for all answers to prayer, whether we like the answer or not. We need to praise God because we know, again, that he is in control and that these things are ordained by him. So once Daniel is taking care of the important business of thanking God for his mercy, he then immediately goes to Ariok. Um, in every one of these interactions, Daniel follows a proper procedure, and he recognizes established authority structure. The way he respects authority demonstrates his humility, and we can learn from it. Now, respect those in authority above us. Ask for permission. Now, there will be times when we have to go around 
of the system. There'll be times when it, it, it's not going to happen, right? Um, that that going that way um, is the right way. But as much as possible, as much that we can, we need to follow God's ordained authority. We need to apply wisdom and discernment to every decision. So Ariok personally escorts Daniel into the king's presence, and he claims that he has found someone who could give the interpretation to the king. This little, you know, he, he's taking credit for Daniel for finding Daniel, and it's it, it kind of gives us a little picture of the inner workings and the maneuvering of politics. Nebuchadnezzar asks if Daniel can really interpret the dream, and the temptation surely was there for Daniel to take some credit for himself. You know, he's got Ariok taking credit for him, you know, for finding Daniel. Well, maybe Daniel can take credit for interpreting the dream. But instead, he gives all the credit to God. Daniel makes a definite point of telling the king that the answer is not the result of his own wisdom. Daniel strives to make the king look away from himself, from Daniel, and to the true God who gives the answer. Daniel sees his purpose there is to exalt God above all the other gods uh, that were in that heathen place. If pagan Nebuchadnezzar wanted an answer to the dreams that were troubling him, he was going to have to get it from the God in heaven. So Daniel seizes the chance to share this truth about God. He's using his gift in his position for the Lord. Like Daniel, we should take every chance to glorify God. Sometimes people praise us for things we do, um, gifts, uh, you know, physical or, or uh, other you know, mental gifts that we have. And we say, yep. <laughs> but, um, but we should take those moments to point to God and thank God and acknowledge that he has given those things to us. Don't let those opportunities go to waste. Be bold and give glory and credit to Christ. You know, I do appreciate it. You know, when you watch it, you know, after a sporting event and you get a, an athlete. You know, some of, I don't know that they're all believers, but when they, when, you know, when they say, you know, first of all, you know, that all glory um, goes to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You know, whether they believe it or not, the name of the Lord Jesus is going out, and I appreciate that. Daniel briefly reviews the details of the dream, which was of a um, huge statue made of materials, um, which the world considers to be precious and lasting. But it's standing on weak feet, which, it, which could cause the image to fall. So once he has told Nebuchadnezzar what the dream is, he then prepares to give the interpretation. And although the dream and the interpretation have been given only to Daniel, you note that he says, we will tell you the interpretation. Yeah. In there somewhere. Daniel gives credit also to his companions, to those that prayed with him. Daniel knows that the answer that was given to him was a result of the joint prayer of all of them. And he gives credit to his, his, his fellows that he prayed with. And at the same time, we need to always acknowledge the power of, of praying with others. Acknowledge that when, when the church prays for us and, and, and answers, our, um, answers us, and we need to um, you know, give credit, as it were, you know, to the church, to others that pray for us, and be thankful for that. 
And praise God for that. So now in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and I'm not going to go through all this stuff, just give a brief highlight here. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, there's a single statue with four main parts, and each different part of the statue is symbol, um, symbolizes a world empire. Uh, Carlton has uh, been speaking on this uh, and, uh, uh, and what these empires are. Essentially, uh, they're all connected because they, su um, they succeed one after the other, and uh, because they're all part of, the one, uh, of just one worldly system. The head was of gold, and this symbolized the Babylonian Empire. Um, it's gold because the power of Nebuchadnezzar was given directly by God, and because the Babylonians had essential unity that none of the following empires had. Nebuchadnezzar was the only one of all these kings who had absolute authority over his kingdom. The second part was the, um, was the empire that destroyed Babylon, and succeeded it. And this was the empire of the Medes and Persians. It is less successful and unified than Babylon, and it consists of two main parts, the Medes and the Persians. They are unified. They're two arms, but one chest. And although Nebuchadnezzar will be dead by the time they take over many years later, Daniel will still be alive. Daniel will see the transition from, um, from Babylon to, uh, to, to the Medo-Persian. The third part of the statue uh, are the belly and the thighs of bronze. This symbolizes the Greek Empire, which after many years of war of Persia, will eventually destroy it under Alexander the Great. The Grecian Empire is even less unified than Persia. However, it is made up of many states that are held together in a series of loose, but constantly warring confederations. And then finally, There are the legs of iron, symbolizing the Roman Republic and early Roman Empire. And going down the legs, it becomes weaker and weaker until the iron is mixed with clay. And this probably symbolized the fact that in its later years, the Roman Empire became increasingly fractured. The Romans tried to unify the world under one rule, uh, but the various parts of the empire, especially the Germans and the barbarians in the east, and so the Germans again, they refuse to be unified, and gradually the empire uh, collapses and it degenerates and uh, kind of falls apart. But lastly, there is a rock that is not part of the statue that is cut out from a mountain, but it is cut without hands. This symbolizes a kingdom that is not made by man, but it's the work of God. It strikes the last empire on its feet and breaks the statue into pieces which blow away in the wind. And this kingdom shall never end. Um, and it grows and grows until it fills the whole world. This is a picture of the church in the world. Ultimately, it was the church that breaks down uh, the Roman Empire. All these things that, you know, it's, it, you know um, David Jeremiah wrote a book uh, called what if, uh, what if Jesus Had Never Been Born? Uh, I think it was Jeremiah. Um, but he goes through and talks about all these things that the that that Christianity has done uh, to improve the world and things that uh, you, you look at what was going on, you know, in the secular world and what Christianity did to make it better. You know, and each one of us has our own kingdom. 
You know, it might be our work or our hobbies or something else in our personal lives um, that we put first and that we build and we try to um, we try to make great. But this stone will come and it will crush those things. The stone carries the judgment of God. And though we cannot see the hand that cuts the stone, we know there is a hand there. And this stone comes to crush those um, those things that we love and hold close to, but those things that do not last. And it destroys those things only to make room for the eternal kingdom of God to fill our hearts. Daniel tells us that the stone is the kingdom of God itself. And not only does it have the task of destruction, but it has the role of restoration. We see the Lord Jesus Christ here in the stone that was rejected. But he overcomes and becomes a mountain that fills the earth. For Daniel, there was a blank in the vision. You know, Daniel, from his spot, he's looking out. He can't see what that stone is. He can't see that mountain. But we know what it is. That blank is filled by the message of the gospel. It's the gospel that we learn how the stone that was rejected becomes the chief cornerstone. It's through the gospel that we see the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is that stone, that chief cornerstone, rejected by the builders. The Lord Jesus has allowed himself to be crushed. And in this, we see the revealing of another mystery. We see that as the stone crushes kingdoms, there is also a place of protection. And that place is the cross of Calvary. It's the place where Christ took the judgment upon himself. A judgment that was rightfully meant for us. The stone crushes our kingdoms, and in so doing, it frees us from the guilt and power of sin. Worldly kingdoms, even personal kingdoms, will crumble away. But the church, built on the gospel of Christ, will go on forever. If we are part of that kingdom, we will never fade away. God has promised that. You know, the Lord Jesus said that no one can pluck us from his hand. We can trust in Christ because he is in control of the universe. He's in control of our lives. And most importantly, he controls the future. The final reading from Nebuchadnezzar's sleep study is that Christ is in control of all things. So may the Lord help us to take strength and comfort from the truth that our God reigns over the kingdoms of the world and over the hearts of men. Praise him. Lord Jesus, we thank you that indeed you are that stone that was rejected. But in being rejected at the cross of Calvary, you overcame all sin. You overcame. And one day, all worlds will be made your all, all kingdoms will be made your footstool. And you will reign over all. And we thank you that because of your work, we too can reign with you. We can have a peace that has uh, that, that passes understanding. And we thank you for this example of Daniel, who had such faith and depended upon you for all things. Help us to be like Daniel. Increase our faith, we pray. Help us to help others. 
And may we always give praise and glory to you. We thank you for your word. We ask your blessing on it. Amen. Amen. Amen.